So we're going to be continuing today a series that we started two weeks ago. It's a series through the book of 1 Peter, and it's entitled A Royal Priesthood, the Body of Christ in 1 Peter. And if you remember two weeks ago, Steve started us off in this book. Uh, it's only five chapters long, so if you ever want to get that muscle going of finishing a book of, in the Bible, just sit down, halftime, while you're watching football today, just halftime, just pound out five chapters of 1 Peter. Uh, it's only five chapters long. Uh, But we're going to be taking uh, the next six or seven weeks and studying through what it means to live as the body of Christ, live as followers of Jesus with the reality of his lordship in our lives as from what we can see in the Bible in 1 Peter, the letter that Peter wrote to the saints in what is today modern-day Turkey, but written to us as well. So Steve began uh, a couple weeks ago, and he he started off with Peter's opening verses about a very celebratory thing. And that celebratory thing that we were in awe of was that we have been birthed in Jesus into a new living hope. And that, it's, that new living hope is sprung from this inheritance of salvation that we have as believers in Jesus. And it's the inheritance of salvation that is so wonderful, not just because of what it is, but because of the absence of it before That before we were actually enemies of God, separated from God, but now through the inheritance of salvation, through faith in Jesus, it does two very specific things for us. For one, it secures our eternal future with God. It secures our eternal future with God, now, presently, and forever. And Peter references this in verse 4 of 1 Peter, where he says, this is an inheritance that can never perish spoil or fade and I love that he just kind of elaborates on that he could have said man this salvation will never go bad milk goes bad in your fridge this salvation will never perish spoil or fade so it's an inheritance of salvation that secures our future with God both now and forever it also though allows us to rejoice in this present life no matter what and Peter references that as well When he says, though, now you may have to suffer trials of many kinds. Because those trials, because of our great salvation, just serve to show the genuineness of our faith in Jesus. And at their absolute worst, and I'm not making light of of anything, because I know that there are people in this room, myself included, that have suffered trials, and there are certainly people on this planet who are suffering greater trials even at this very moment than us. But the reality of trials is, in comparison to our final and great salvation with Jesus, trials are not as eternal as the salvation given to us by Jesus. So what a great inheritance. That's why it's a living hope. And I would, I would term it this way, that what Peter has started to do in this letter that he's written is he started to begin to show how God has expressed the gospel the fullness of the reality of our salvation, how God has begun to express the gospel that he has put forth to us. And what Peter is going to begin to do, and we'll look at this today, is we're going to begin to to take a look at how that gospel that God has expressed to us, how that begins to be expressed in response in our lives. So God has expressed the gospel in its fullness to us, and we are going to see how we begin to re-express the gospel in our lives. And Peter's taking great care to lay some groundwork here in this letter because he's shaping a very important picture for the, for the believers here in Asia Minor. And it's important to understand 
this structure and this pathway that Peter is, is going down so that we can fully grasp where he is as he's explaining things. And, and so I want to take a second and talk about the structure of Peter's letter uh, because it is a letter and it involves a little bit of biblical interpretation thinking. Now, don't get intimidated. You are already better at this than you think you are. Trust me. You may never have thought of yourself as a biblical interpreter, but you are actually an interpreter. And I'll give you an example. Are you good at experiencing a story? Yeah, yeah you are. You know how I know? Because you all binge watch on Netflix, okay? <laughs> I know you know, I know you're aching for what's next on Stranger Things and some other shows I'm not even going to mention. But whether it's a book or a TV show, or a movie, or a play, or whatever it may be, whether it's a short story, a trilogy, uh, a whole, uh, you know, a whole seven, eight years of a show. I mean, all of college for me was lost. That's just, I just watched Lost. And the ending, by the way, still terrible. Still terrible, okay? The other, everything else, still awesome. Still really awesome. That was back when we had to put in a tape to actually record it, because I had rehearsal at night, and it was, that was the life. But let me ask you something. What sustains you when you're experiencing a story over the long term? I would say it's this. You actually know the components of what makes a good story. You actually do. Whether you were an English major or not, whether, you are, whether you're a literary master or not, you actually know what makes a story experienceable. I know it's not a word, but you know I create words if you've ever heard me preach. And here's what, what are, the literary experts agree that there are five parts of a story, okay? Here, you guys know what they are? Firstly, exposition. Secondly, rising action. Thirdly, climax. Fourthly, if there was rising action, there is falling action. You got A plus. And then finally, resolution. And you, you may be sitting there going, I... I've never thought that out. I just, you know, I'm just watching House of Cards. But here's, you, you do know it. You've seen it enough. You've experienced it enough that it's in you. It's ingrained in how you interpret and experience a story. And it's why you can sustain yourself through an entire season of a show or entire volumes of, of a story in books. Because here's why. A suspenseful moment in season one, episode one, is going to feel different to you than if it's in the season finale. Why? Because it stands a greater chance of maybe being the climax or maybe meeting something different. And just inherently, you know that. If the main character is in trouble in the third episode of a season, you're not worried. You're just not. Because you're good at interpreting story. In other words your interpretive muscle is already way more honed than you think it is. It just is. So don't be intimidated. Now, while Peter's not writing a story here, he is writing a letter. And most of the New Testament is letters. Most of it is is a letter from an apostle to a group of saints somewhere in the Mediterranean world and also, by extension, written to us who believe in Jesus today. So we need to recognize that we're reading a letter. And most, you know, so... The, the key question for us is, do these letters have somewhat of a general structure that we should be aware of that would help us to follow it? Do they have that? Well, I'm really glad you asked because, yes, they do. They do have that. Knowing where we are in the letter can help us understand the thrust of what the New Testament author is saying. Is that okay? Happiness? So most New Testament letters have a rough structure like this. It goes like this. They start off 
with, firstly, this is the amazing account of what God has done for us. This is the amazing account. If you read in the first part of Ephesians, Paul takes two and a half chapters, and he literally doesn't use a period and talks about the grace of God that he has lavished upon us. It's like butter on a roll. He's just like, once you think butter's dripping off the side and you just put another pat up, I mean, this grace that God is just embarrassingly pouring out on us. And then he goes on from there. And Peter has done that here. It's a declaration of the greatness of God, the fullness of his majesty, made clear in the person of his son, Jesus, and always made known by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And Peter has done this in the first five verses of of his letter. So I want to read them to you, but I want you to hear them with your newly realized letter interpreting ears, okay? This is the amazing thing that God has done for us. You happy? Let's listen. 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 5. It'll be behind me. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Like we said, modern-day Turkey. You guys know where all these places are. The elect who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Look what God has done for us right off the top. And we're into the letter. Look what God has done for us. Secondly, most New Testament letters have a portion that they transition to that says, in light of this amazing thing that God has done for us, how then should our lives look? God has done this amazing thing, therefore let our lives be pleasing to him in certain ways. Peter begins to intersect the miraculous outworking of God's plan and glory with the need for us to live out the reflection of this in our own lives. And so it moves a little bit from a declaration to a call. From a declaration to a call. And that's where we're going to start to be here in the second half of the first chapter of 1 Peter. There's a lot of second and first in there, sorry. Look at this amazing thing that God has done. In light of that, how should our lives look? And then thirdly, each New Testament letter ends in a place, gets to a place where we say, now that we know that, let's get to the nitty-gritty and specifics of how that actually happens. God's amazing work, how our lives look in light of that. How do we get dirt under our fingernails doing that? Day by day, with one another, reflecting the heart and lordship of Jesus on an individual level, on a family level, and on an entire local church level. So last week, Steve opened our series with where Peter declares, look at this amazing living hope that we have. And today we're transitioning into that second part of our lives, therefore, are going to have a certain response. And for the rest of this series, we'll be getting into that place of this is how it looks specifically, day by day, with you and me on an individual, family, and local church level. That is, 
This is how God has expressed the gospel. How then should we re-express the gospel? You okay? So we're going to start to look at that transition in Peter's letter today. And we'll go through some large chunks of scripture, so we don't want to miss any of the Bible's fullness. You know me in large chunks of scripture. I'm a sucker for them. But again, I just want to encourage you, be reading through 1 Peter. Be reading through it multiple times over this next month and a half as we're studying it together. Okay, so let's pick up where Peter starts this transition. He starts this turn into, in light of God's great glory, what should we be doing? And I want to pick it up in verse 10. So follow along with me. 1 Peter 1, verse 10. Concerning this salvation that Peter has so greatly celebrated, concerning this salvation, the prophets of the Old Testament, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them, that's cool, was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. Wow. When they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. That's a cool verse. We'll look at that in just a second. I want to submit to you that God firstly has expressed the gospel in a very clear way. And that that way that God has expressed the gospel firstly is in mystery. God expresses the gospel in mystery. Follow me here. This is what Peter has said so far. God in his amazing holiness, unspeakable, undescribable existence in his foreknowledge and planning. Yay, all the predestination fans have, have chosen us to be elect. Why? To be obedient to Jesus. Yay, all the free will fans. By the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, given us an inheritance of a new salvation in him, a living hope. And as God was working this out, he was whispering it to the hearts of the Old Testament prophets, not revealing the fullness of what was to come, but giving them a, a, a hint and a glimpse into what was going to occur. And then when the time was right, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to, be, to fully reveal the Father, as Jesus said. And as the work of Jesus on earth was complete, the gospel, the telling of that, has begun, has begun to go forth into the ends of the earth, and that's where the receivers of Peter's letter are. He says, the gospel that was preached to you, and all of this is so wondrous, so unthinkable, so unimaginably glorious, that even angels long to look into what God is doing here. Now, hang on. What do angels look on? Angels currently look on the throne room of heaven. They are currently in the presence of God forever declaring his greatness, and even there, they're saying, what is this wondrous, amazing gospel that God has worked out in his foreknowledge and accomplishes in our hearts to this day? They're blown away by it. I completely left my notes. God has expressed the gospel in mystery, and I want to say, firstly, that we need to be, we need to be okay with that. We need to be okay with that. Everything that I just said to you, I know, but I don't really understand, to be honest. I think we need to admit that. The greatness and the, and the, um, the unimaginable glory of the gospel and our salvation, yeah, we know it and we celebrate it and we do need to know it. But I don't understand the nitty-gritty of that transaction before God. And boy, we should celebrate that. 
So God has expressed the gospel in mystery. And how should then we respond to that? Well, I want to submit to you that we should respond to God expressing the gospel in mystery by our belief. We should respond with our belief. And I know that might sound kind of simple, but listen to what First Peter, or Peter writes in chapter 8, or verse 8, excuse me. Though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You know, the, the, the greatest honor that you can give a mystery is to believe it. The greatest honor you can give to a mystery is to believe it. And before we think that that's like a little uh, too cheap or easy, let's remember how many people don't believe it. And what a, and what an, what a tragedy that is. Because don't you just feel the, the, the desperation of that? It's, just, oh, gracious, God's asking for our belief. So belief, on the one hand, seems like a small little thing, but not to God. To God, it's everything. Because he's revealed the gospel in mystery. It's salvation. Our salvation is not cheap. It's the great sacrificial work of a holy God. And while it's not cheap, it is free, though, with our belief in Jesus. And because of that, belief is not a cheap and easy response. And we'll see that belief is actually evidenced in some pretty amazing life-defining ways. And we'll get to that later as we continue our study of 1 Peter. You guys okay? Happiness? All right. So God expresses the gospel in mystery, and we express the gospel in a response with belief. And Peter is applauding the fact that his listeners have done that here, his readers. Let's move to verse 13. Therefore, okay, let me stop us. I love the word therefore in Scripture. It always means something. It's always a pregnant word. It's always a pregnant word. It doesn't mean new paragraph here. It means we, we've, we've settled something. We've settled something, and now we can move because of what we've settled. And what have we settled? I believe Peter means by therefore right here, since you have the gospel revealed in mystery, but you believe it. Since you have the gospel revealed in mystery, but you believe it. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. God has not only revealed the gospel in mystery, expressed the gospel in mystery, he expresses the gospel in grace. In grace. A grace that has accomplished eternal salvation for us and a grace that accomplishes the daily, joyful, knowing presently of God through his son, Jesus Christ. And so I would term it like this. God's grace is both a current and a coming grace. God's grace is current and coming because currently we hold the privilege of knowing God, the Father, through his son Jesus, experiencing his redemption daily, hearing his voice, submitting to his word, greatly rejoicing in his love for us. That's our current experience of the matchless grace of God. And we also know that we will experience a coming grace of God knowing that we will stand before Jesus one day, fully redeemed, fully covered by his redemptive work, and we will stand in that way only worthy to be with him for all time as he passes judgment. And more on that to come, because we do serve a God who will judge. But in that moment of great completeness, for us, that coming grace will mean 
that we're with God eternally. Us in the presence of Jesus forever in the absence of time. Just in his glory. I long for that day. God's grace that he has expressed the gospel in is both a current and a coming grace. And I'm not meaning to sound overly poetic or waxing overly grand, but you know what? It's overly grand. It just is. And I'm not sorry. It's amazing. And we couldn't think it up. So how do we respond to God expressing the gospel in grace? I would argue from, from what Peter says here that we, we express the gospel in our hope. We express the gospel in our hope. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. A current and coming grace can cause only one response in us, and that is hope for the day that Jesus returns. Firstly, do you hope for that day? I hope for that day. I hope for the day described in Revelation 22 where we're in the holy city forever with Jesus and there's no more sun or moon because the glory of God is the light everywhere. And the trees planted on either side of the river whose leaves are for the healing of nations. I long for that day. I can't read the last chapters of Revelation without being undone. It's a hope for that because of the grace of God. And a current and coming grace is also revealed in the hope of our daily lives until then. And Peter's already Reference that, though for now you may have to suffer grief in trials of many kinds. But see, I have a hope that is linked to a grace that runs more eternally than my trials do. Therefore, I can set my hope on the grace. And how does this hope happen? Well, this verse interestingly tells us that. How does this hope happen? It happens through a transformation of our mind. A fundamental renewal of how we reckon ourselves and how we reckon the world around us. So, so let's look at this again. Therefore, since you have the gospel expressed by God in grace with minds that are alert, that is a shifted perspective, that is a changed view. Why? 2 Corinthians 5.17 reminds us, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has and the new has come. Not the old has been washed up and repositioned. The old is gone. The new has come. And that applies to how? That applies to our minds as well. The renewing of our mind. Minds that are alert and fully sober. What does sober mean? It means not inebriated. (laughs) We won't go into who of us have been unsober before. But you're not You can't walk straight, think straight, talk straight. You're not sober, but someone who is sober has their bearings. So therefore, because we have a renewed mind, we have our bearings based upon who God is, then we set our hope on the current and coming grace. So as God expresses the gospel with grace, we respond with hope. We express our belief we express our hope, and now we start to get more into this bridge between what God has done and how this really starts to look and take shape and form in our lives. Biggest chunk of scripture we're going to read right here, verse 14. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance. You're not in ignorance anymore. Renewed mind, new creation. Ignorance is gone. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. 
Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you by your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so that your faith and hope are in God. A gospel of grace, follow me here, a gospel expressed in grace is justified because God is holy. A gospel expressed in grace is justified because God is holy. Holy God has the prerogative to judge. So an unholy God does not have the prerogative to actually give grace. The intertwining and intimacy of holiness and grace in the character of God is inseparable. He is equally at once one one and the other, never either or. God himself has expressed the gospel in holiness. God has expressed the gospel in holiness. He himself is holy. He sent his son Jesus Christ, holy, lived a holy life to rightfully and justifiably pay the penalty for unholiness that you and I bear. And through paying that, God raised him from the dead. He's seated now victorious in the throne room of heaven. And by the way, still holy. God's currency is holiness. He only deals in holiness. In fact, we see from the Old Testament, it's as if God's saying, don't come to me without holiness. So he makes the way for us to be holy. And holiness is sometimes kind of an itchy thing. You can feel it in the room. Boy, when I was talking about grace, you guys were like, awesome sermon, James. This This is what I needed. I don't even have to have my quiet time today. The second I turned to holiness, you guys were like, you're not my friend. Talking about God's holy and going to judge me. Holiness is itchy because it reminds us of the distance between us and God. But you know what? That distance is real. That distance is real. And it's the root of our reverence for God and it's the root of our worship. And we need to be shaken up a little bit by God's holiness. We're invited to boldly approach the throne of grace, as Hebrews says. We're invited for that, dare I say, familiarity with God. But God is a holy God. And that privilege has been bought with a holy price. And it's way easier and we'd be way more comfortable for God to just say, you know what, be, be gracious because I'm gracious. Oh, awesome. Thank you, Lord. He says, be holy because I'm holy. We need a reverent, authentic perspective on God's holiness. And I'll give you an example of what I, what I mean. Uh, it's not going to be on the screen behind me, but I'm always knocked down by the first part of, of Isaiah 6 when Isaiah finds himself in the throne room. And I just want to read this to you. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Just imagine this for a moment. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. But it's all good, I said. I know that God is awesome and gracious, and he's cool with me being here in my uncleanliness. So I know that God and I are cool. Sorry, that's actually not what it says. It says, woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. When it touched, with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Sorry, we can't have the grace of God without the, without the holiness of God. And the minute we start kicking back and saying, God is so gracious and awesome, without a realization of his holiness. We're still friends. I'm just passionate about this. <laughs> then I'm sorry. We've cheapened God's grace. And if we reckon God's grace without his holiness, we've cheapened it. And we can't allow God's holiness to be watered down by the fact that he's gracious. God has expressed the gospel with his holiness. How does he tell us to express the gospel then in our own lives? Biblical scholars, he says it right there. Be holy because I'm holy. We re-express, we respond with holy lives. Why? Three very clear reasons. And I need to hustle. Three very clear reasons. Firstly, because God commands it. Good, I'm not going to elaborate on that. We express the gospel with holy living because God commands it. And secondly, because all will be judged by God. I know that's not fun. And I know it's not culturally comfortable, but we'll all be judged by God. Verse 17, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, we will be judged by God. The Bible speaks very clearly of two judgments, and we're not going to theologically get into this or your eschatological timeline, whether you read the Left Behind series or any of that. What I'm saying to you is this, the Bible speaks very clearly of two judgments. One is the final judgment where, where people who, and, and the, the devil and anyone not With faith in Jesus, the enemies of God are cast away forever and everyone else is invited into the holy city. And and, and that's just what God has has ordained. And that's bought with our belief, with our faith. And the other is a judgment where our lives are given account for in front of Jesus. And the Father will judge our lives impartially. And he says, therefore, be holy because I am holy. So as Christians then, do we need to fear God? Well, yes and no. No, we don't have to fear eternal torment and separation from God. Because that's been purchased. The salvation from that has been purchased. But yeah, we need to have a holy reverence and a reckoning of that initial distance between God and us in our understanding that our lives will be accounted for. And that as I go today, as I am a husband, a father, a pastor, a friend, a man, as I live my life, whatever years I've been given, I will give an account of these years. And so will you. So we respond with holy living because God commands it, because he will judge our lives impartially, and because, you know what, to be honest, daggummit, Jesus will have what he paid for. Jesus will have what he paid for. We are not redeemed, Peter reminds us, with tawdry little coins. And by the way, that word redeemed, the original meaning of the word redemption, see, see our our concept of redeemed right now is like I'm checking out on, um, you know, 
Amazon or something, and it says, do you have a discount code you would like to redeem? The original meaning of redemption describes the process by which something that is marked for discarding, destruction, or death is then actually purchased and repurposed. That's the original meaning of redemption. So let's re-reckon ourselves to what the, what the original meaning of redemption is. We are redeemed not with tawdry little throwaway coins, but rather with the very holy, gracious, mysterious work of the blood of Jesus, fully holy, fully God, fully undeserving, fully paying the penalty, fully dead, fully raised. And by the way, as we've mentioned, still holy. <laughs> and one last note on holiness. Steve reminded us of this in the first week. Holiness doesn't mean uh, haughty and better. Holiness doesn't mean nose upturned. It means, as Peter described, reverent and foreign to this age. Reverent and foreign to this age. There's going to be a difference to you. There's going to be a difference to me, to this age. And Peter's going to describe that even more later on when he talks about living in the pagan age that we do. So God has expressed the gospel in holiness, and we respond by living holy lives. So we express our belief, we express our hope, we express our holy set-apart lives, and we're going to bring this into a land right now. What is God's chosen way, therefore, for all of this to be outworked? What is God's chosen way for all of this expression of the gospel in our lives to be outworked? Well, the answer really shouldn't surprise you. If you've been with us throughout the summer and you were following with us in our series on spiritual gifts, gifts from the Father, gifts from the Son, gifts from the Holy Spirit, uh, outworked in one body for the benefit of others, always uh, given to us to, to encourage, equip, and to, and, and to bless one another. What, does, what did Paul remind us in 1 Corinthians 13 that if we don't have, all of that is for naught? If I don't have love, if I don't have love. And guess what? Now that you have purified yourselves, verse 22, obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for one another, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, Peter reminds us, not of perishable seed, not of tawdry stuff, but of imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God, the gospel preached to you. God has expressed the gospel in love. God has expressed the gospel in love. I mean, we, we, could, we could be here for weeks recounting where God describes the love in which he has expressed the gospel. For God so loved the world, John three sixteen, that he sent his one and only son. But God demonstrates his love for us, Romans 5, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We could go on and on and on. And by the way, Here's where we begin to start to see the turn to the nitty-gritty specific stuff in Peter's letter, where we're going to be for the remainder of this series. And it's going to look, if you're wondering what it's going to look like, it's going to look like sincere love. It's going to look like sincere love. So God expresses the gospel in love, and we respond by expressing the gospel with sincere love for one another. And really, we shouldn't be shocked. I mean, Jesus himself said this would be our hallmark. He said, by this, they will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another in John 13. Once again, why? Verse 23, for you have been born again. You are new. You are redone. You are a new creation where the old 
has died and passed. The new has come. You have been born again. And that didn't happen by some perishable, tawdry, spoiling thing. That happened by the perfect, spotless, holy blood of Jesus with the foreknowledge and planning of God to accomplish what he did. That is the root of your redemption. Therefore, love one another deeply from the heart. And aren't you glad he doesn't say like? Like one another? You can see on some of your faces that you're glad he didn't say like. God has expressed this gospel. And you know what? Us expressing it in our lives is worth it because of the work of Jesus. And it's just folly to outwork it in any way but sincere love. We're going to discover more of how this looks as we continue in our series on First Peter. And I hope that you will go and, and read and begin to pour into this book and begin to come on a Sunday ready and hungry and looking for what God has spoken to you to be spoken to us corporately. Uh, I, I want to uh, invite Matt back up. But before I do, just to, just to say... If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I hope that something of what has come through today is that the gospel, what God has done and his desire for you, the gospel is calling. That the gospel is calling. And if you have questions about that or, that, or you would say that that's not a way you would describe yourself as having placed your faith in Jesus, I personally want to talk to you after the service. Just come up and talk to me. I'm way less intense in person. I have a few friends here who can attest to that. So can I pray for us? Then Matt. Lord, I just thank you for the beautiful picture that you've painted for us in the gospel. And I thank you for the invitation to express that in our lives, Lord. More than the invitation, the command. And Lord, would you just freshly reveal to us in the name of Jesus the weight and privilege of giving you our our belief and our hope and living a holy life and outworking sincere love to one another. And I pray even right now that what you have stirred up in hearts, Lord, um, that you would speak life to it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Just have a sense, Lord, right now that you are arousing something afresh in hearts where there's been a dimming or there's been a walking away, that you are softly saying, come back. Come back to the beauty and the joy of the expression of the gospel. So, Lord, I just pray you do that right now in hearts in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen.